Hi, this is the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to the long-awaited second part of Hobbit Lecture 5, Bilbo Builds His Resume. In Part 1, we looked at the mysterious and magical atmosphere of Mirkwood, with its connections to fairy and its corruption by darkness. We looked at the spiders, the chief representatives of that darkness, and the elves and their complicated relationship with their dwarf prisoners. Now it's time to turn back to Mr. Baggins, for in this section of the text, chapters 8 through 10, we see another very important point in Bilbo's career. In the middle of chapter 8, when the dwarves and Bilbo have tried and failed for the third time to enter the firelit circle of the elves' woodland feasting, and Bilbo finds himself alone in the complete and utter dark of the Mirkwood night, Bilbo faces what is called one of his most miserable moments, on page 141. We should, of course, be remembering a closely parallel moment from back in Chapter 5, the moment when he woke up in the dark in the goblin tunnels and found the ring, what the narrator calls the turning point in his career. Once again, Bilbo is completely lost in the pitch darkness, in very hostile territory, with no resources to draw upon to save his life from an apparently hopeless situation. Once again, his first impulse is a Baggins-ish escapism, thinking of his far-distant hobbit hole with its beautiful pantries, and trying to lose himself in images of bacon and eggs and toast and butter. Once again, he finds much better and more substantial, though much more tookish, comfort in his sword. The chapter 5 moment is the first time he remembers the sword, draws it, and discovers that it too is an ancient elvish blade. The chapter 8 moment will be the first time he actually uses it. I said quite a while ago, in lecture number 3, how important that chapter 5 moment is in Bilbo's life. It's the moment when he must become a real adventurer all on his own, or else die. Bilbo succeeds, of course, and there's no downplaying the significance of that sequence in Bilbo's view of himself or in his relationship with the dwarves, not even to mention the finding of the ring and the enormously important moral choice to show mercy to Gollum. And yet, though the dwarves may think much more highly of him after his solo escape from the mountains, he doesn't really start contributing to the quest much more than he did before his turning point. After his reunion with the dwarves and wizard, all he does is complain about being hungry, and he nearly gets left behind several times. He is some use for his superior vision, when he's able to see the boat on the far side of the black stream in Mirkwood, and his smallness of stature is useful, sort of, when he's climbing up the tree to check on their location, but none of these things really amount to all that much. Notice how much he actually gets carried around, up the tree by Dory, to the eagle's eyrie hanging onto Dory's legs, and across the river to the Carrick. Even back in his momentous encounter with Gollum, think how many times he was saved simply by luck, through no virtue or skill or independent action of his own. This happens no fewer than three times during the riddle contest alone, with good luck providing him the answers to the fish riddle and the time riddle, and also leading him to say aloud accidentally the final and winning question when he could think of no new riddle. Bilbo's standing with the dwarves is much higher during their trip through Mirkwood, clearly, and they have begun to take him seriously, but he hasn't yet really done that much to back up his new standing. At this second turning point, this second instance of waking up alone in the dark, all of that is about to change. This time, there is just Bilbo and a monstrous spider who is trying to capture him. Luck doesn't intervene to save him, other than to wake him up before his arms are wrapped up. He draws his sword for the second time ever, and this time he attacks with it. The unsheathing of the sword is a turning point within this pivotal encounter, for although at first Bilbo had been desperately trying to defend himself, beating off the spider with his hands, he afterwards charges to the attack himself. He strikes the spider right in the eyes, those huge, pale, bulbous eyes that had so creeped him out when they peered at him out of the dark under the trees when he first entered Mirkwood. Bilbo is no longer merely enduring the darkness and showing resolution in escaping it. He is now striking back and defeating it. 
The first turning point in Bilbo's career goes by almost unnoticed by him, and doesn't seem to change his view of himself all that much. All he thinks about afterwards is how hungry he is. The second one affects him profoundly. The narrator tells us that somehow the killing of the giant spider, all alone in the dark without the help of the wizard or the dwarves or of anyone else, made a great difference to Mr. Baggins. He felt a different person, much fiercer and bolder, in spite of an empty stomach. Remember that Bilbo wanted to be thought fierce by the dwarves back in Bag End, and when he learned that his little sword was an elvish blade, he began to hope that perhaps the goblins might take him for someone fierce. Now he genuinely feels fierce, and with good reason. Bilbo marks the occasion in the classic Tolkien style, by the granting of a name. The name he gives is not to himself, but to his sword, addressing it aloud and calling it Sting. This name, however, still says a lot about Bilbo's sense of his own identity in this moment. The chapter, of course, is titled Flies and Spiders. When Bilbo woke up, the spider was trying to poison him to keep him quiet, as small spiders do to flies. Bilbo's attack with his sword is a kind of reversal, the fly unexpectedly stinging back. The narrator points out that the spider evidently was not used to things that carried such stings. Bilbo may be only a fly, but he is now a fierce fly. After passing this pivotal moment in his adventurous career and in his understanding of himself, Bilbo immediately finds himself in a position where he's called upon to act out his new role, to follow up the momentum of his attack on the spider. When Bilbo escaped the Misty Mountains, he realized that the dwarves might still be prisoners back in the goblin caves, and he had the very uncomfortable thought that it might be his duty to go and rescue them. Now, after defeating the spider, the narrator shows us Bilbo's increased confidence by stating nonchalantly that, obviously, he had first of all to look for his friends. Bilbo's new and fierce identity is on full display almost right away, and the logic of events demonstrates clearly how much he really has changed since the day of the unexpected party. For one thing, Bilbo shows remarkable nerve and daring. Remember that back in Bag End, just hearing Thorin talk about the possibility that some of them might never return from their journey was enough to make Bilbo burst out into a shriek and collapse into a quivering heap on the floor. Now, he has the coolness to deliberately goad more than fifty giant spiders into charging him, and to lead them on a chase through the dark and trackless forest. He can stand a little later in the middle of hundreds of angry spiders surrounding him and his friends, and not only keep from panicking, but actually charge and attack them. He darted backward and forward, slashing at spider threads, hacking at their legs, and stabbing at their fat bodies if they came too near. As with the first spider he kills, Bilbo's fierceness quite startles his monstrous enemies. As Bilbo scatters the spiders on the ground around Bumber, we are told that his little sword was something new in the way of stings for them, how it darted to and fro. Bilbo's sword, whose new name is the expression of this new bold and dashing spirit of Bilbo's, cheerfully reflects its master's courage, shining with delight as he stabs at the spiders. In this moment, we can hardly think of Bilbo as Bullroarer Took's gentler descendant. Nobody would mistake Bilbo for a grocer now. We should also take note not only of Bilbo's general bravery, but of the overall spirit of self-sacrifice in which he acts throughout. Bilbo is not just acting to save himself. Indeed, he's repeatedly putting himself into danger in order to rescue his friends. Whether he's drawing off the spiders to attack him in order to give the dwarves time to escape, or actually throwing himself between his friends and danger, Bilbo's actions in this scene are genuinely heroic. Back in Bag End, he wanted to be thought fierce, and he certainly achieved that goal, for by the end, the spiders had become mortally afraid of Sting and dared not come very near. 
When Gandalf had been recruiting a fourteenth member of the dwarves' party, you'll remember, he had ended up settling for a burglar when what he had really wanted had been a warrior or even a hero. In this moment, it rather looks like he ended up getting the complete package. In the Dungeons of the Elven King, we also return once more to an important issue raised in Chapter 1 of the book, the question of Bilbo's professional identity. The dwarves, of course, openly questioned Gandalf's labeling Bilbo a burglar at first. When Bilbo first tried his hand at burglarious actions in his encounter with the trolls, it didn't turn out very well, and the dwarves didn't appreciate it. In breaking his friends out of prison, however, Bilbo is not only showing once more the leadership and initiative he displayed in the spider colony, but he's also finally coming into his own as a burglar. Stealing the guards' keys and sneaking around silently to unlock his friends' cells while the elves feast in their halls above is a genuine professional success. As Thorin remarks, Gandalf spoke true as usual. A pretty fine burglar you make, it seems, when the time comes. In fact, during the weeks he spends in the halls of the Wood Elves, Bilbo becomes a professional burglar in more than one sense. He is not only rendering the dwarves his professional assistance, as he is contracted to do in the formal letter Thorin left on his mantelpiece, but he's also earning his living by burglary on a day-to-day basis. In the Caves of the Elves, he lives a sneaking sort of life, putting the power of his invisibility ring and his own skills at stealth to work in order to pick up a living of some kind by stealing food from store or table when no one was at hand. His burglary becomes quite casual and offhand, as we see when he sneaks away from the barrels to find food among the riverside huts, and we are told that he no longer thought twice about picking up a supper uninvited if he got the chance. In this portion of his adventure, Bilbo has become a kind of subsistence burglar, Now, we've seen several occasions on which it was clear that Bilbo cares very much what the dwarves think of him. Even when he was still resistant to the idea of adventures, back in his predictable Baggins-ish life in Bag End, he is still mortally offended when Glowen remarks that he looks more like a grocer than a burglar. When he is watching the three enormous trolls from the safety of the bushes, he overcomes his fear and tries to pick William's pocket because he could not go back to Thorin and company empty-handed. When he escaped the mountains and proves to the dwarves for the first time that he might in fact be a really first-class burglar, Bilbo is very pleased and basks in his friend's praise. We might expect, therefore, that at this point in his journey, when his professional accomplishments would seem to earn him the rank of really first-class and legendary burglar, he would be tremendously satisfied and feeling very good about himself. Instead, what we find is that he rather hates his job. His life as a subsistence burglar is not glorious, but miserable. He is all alone and always in hiding, never daring to take off his ring, hardly daring to sleep. Instead of feeling fulfilled, he feels trapped, remarking to himself, I'm like a burglar that can't get away, but must go on miserably burgling the same house day after day. The prospect of having to remain in the caves when he's packed the dwarves into the barrels seems a terrible fate. He's filled with dread that he might be utterly left behind and have to stay lurking as a permanent burglar in the elf caves forever. This, Bilbo concludes, is the dreariest and dullest part of all this wretched, tiresome, uncomfortable adventure. Unsurprisingly, this thought brings him back once more to his recurrent wish. I wish I was back in my hobbit hole by my own warm fireside with the lamp shining. He has wished this many times before, but it has generally been when he was lost or threatened or starving. It is not the desire to escape danger that leads him to wish for home here. This is simply an expression of his preference for his old way of life over his new one. Although Bilbo has now become quite good at this whole adventuring thing, when he reaches this point of professional accomplishment, he finds he doesn't really enjoy it. Although he hasn't yet completed his quest, we might still think that his took side had been satisfied. 
He has become, outwardly, quite acclimated to the Turkish adventurous world that burst in on his life at the unexpected party. And yet, we can clearly see that he has not ceased to be Bagansish in his perspective. He may speak with more knowledge and more actual familiarity about dangers and adventures, but his own preferences and attitudes have not actually changed. However, this doesn't mean that his perspective hasn't changed at all. His wistful memories of his distant home and the comforts of his earlier life are now informed by his Turkish experiences. Most telling is the moment when he is stealing dinner among the riverside huts of the raft elves, and we are told that he knew now only too well what it was to be really hungry, not merely politely interested in the dainties of a well-filled larder. Think back to all those fantasies and dreams about bacon and eggs. He still has them, but they have been totally recontextualized, both for Bilbo and for us, and they no longer sound quite the same. The safe, comfortable, predictable, and domestic life of the Bagginses is still something that Bilbo values, but he values it in a very new way. In these chapters, and especially in the Halls of the Elven King, we can also begin to see a theme that we've been tracing through the whole book start to appear more and more frequently. I'm referring to the idea of luck. Not only does Tolkien seem to bring it up a lot while Bilbo is in Mirkwood, but he seems to connect it more and more with Bilbo himself. When Bilbo kills his first spider, and sets out almost blindly to try to find the spider colony and his captive friends, the narrator informs us that, by luck, he was born with a good share of it. He guessed more or less right which way to go. When Bilbo sees the chief of the guards set off to drink with the butler of the Elven King, Bilbo sees that luck was with him, and the narrator almost immediately emphasizes that luck of an unusual kind was with Bilbo then. There are even moments when luck is made to sound like a personal attribute of Bilbo's, as when the dwarves observe that Bilbo has some wits as well as luck and a magic ring, and all three are very useful possessions. Yet Bilbo's luck is not merely blind— He's not simply living some kind of charmed life. In the case of the peculiar luck that he meets with concerning the butler and the guard, we can see that his own resourcefulness and courage precede it and set the stage for it. First come his desperate beginnings of a plan, which is then facilitated by his remarkable stroke of luck. Bilbo is not merely a passive beneficiary. As Bilbo is floating down the river out of Mirkwood, however, we are shown a glimpse of the bigger picture, and we begin to see that the luck which has been visiting Bilbo and his friends is not merely the personal luck of the hobbit. Soon after Bilbo catches his first sight of the Lonely Mountain, he comes to realize that he is very fortunate ever to have seen it at all, and that he has been more lucky than he had guessed. It turns out that the path that the dwarves and Bilbo had been following, the lost path which Bilbo bitterly regretted leaving against the firm and repeated advice of both Gandalf and Bjorn, now came to a doubtful and little-used end at the eastern edge of the forest. These days, only the river offered any longer a safe way from Mirkwood to the Long Lake, so it turns out, as the narrator immediately emphasizes, that Bilbo had come in the end by the only road that was any good. Nor is this the first time this kind of thing has happened to Bilbo and his friends. When they got to Bjorn's house, lamenting their getting sidetracked from the path over the Misty Mountains that Elrond and Gandalf had guided them towards, Bjorn informed them that that path was often used by the goblins, while the forest path they had been aiming for was overgrown and disused at the eastern end and led to impassable marshes where the paths had long been lost. In both cases, it turns out that even the party's bad luck, getting captured by goblins, tied up by spiders, and imprisoned by elves, turned out in the event to have been remarkably and even uniquely fortunate. It begins to seem like Bilbo is only one piece of a much larger plan that is orchestrating events, and that we may be perceiving some higher fate or destiny. The destiny that may be guiding the dwarves' mission becomes a very prominent concern of the story once the party arrives in Lake Town. 
The men of the lake hold on to memories of a glorious past. In the initial description of the town, we're told that some of the townsfolk still sang old songs of the dwarf kings of the mountain, and we know that the town in those days had been wealthy and powerful. The current residents, of course, have a recurring reminder of the previous days of the glory of the town, for the rotting piles of a greater town could still be seen along the shores when the waters sank in a drought. The lake men also looked towards a greater future destiny for their town, for some sang too that Thror and Thrayan would come back one day, and gold would flow in rivers through the mountain gates, and all that land would be filled with new song and new laughter. Notice that here in Eskaroth we have a situation that is in some ways similar to the higher-profile situation we'll see later on with Gondor in The Lord of the Rings, a land that has fallen from glory, but which awaits healing at the hands of the returning king, who comes unlooked for out of the wilderness. Thorin's arrival at the little town by the Long Lake is like a thunderbolt, and it immediately jolts both the memories of the past and the hopes for the future into new life. He himself also undergoes a pretty remarkable transformation. Tolkien gives us a very detailed and memorable description of Thorin as he was when he emerged from his barrel on the shores of the lake. Thorin, as he is lying groaning on the shore, is called a most unhappy dwarf, and he has the savage look of a dog that has been chained and forgotten in a kennel for a week. At first, it seems that Thorin will be a rather pathetic spectacle in the town, and a pretty big disappointment to those who still sang songs of the return of the mighty dwarf kings of old. But when he declares himself and his title, something seems to come over him, and even to affect his appearance in the eyes of the townspeople. He boldly declares his name, lineage, and title to the astonished guards of the town. Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thror, king under the mountain. And the narrator immediately adds, and he looked it, in spite of his torn clothes and draggled hood. So great is the effect of his presence that some of the guards are led to expect an immediate and quite literal fulfillment of the rest of the old prophetic songs, and they actually run outside as if they expected the mountain to go golden in the night. Thorin is clearly a very different dwarf from the wretched, starving, moaning, battered wreck that he was just an hour or so before, and it becomes easy to believe that Thorin might indeed be the instrument of destiny. Thorin and his little company seem genuinely swept up in a larger story that goes well beyond their own personal quest for treasure and vengeance. As we finish up chapter 10, however, we should notice what's going on with Bilbo. We saw before that in the Elven King's halls, lonely, afraid, and not liking being the one everyone depended on, he was distancing himself from the adventurous life in which he was even at the time proving himself so successful. Perhaps we might expect, however, that his time in Lake Town might help to change his mind somewhat. These days by the lake are one of the high watermarks of his entire quest. He is safe and comfortable, and he's being treated like a celebrity. He has received a hero's welcome, and has all the respect he could wish from dwarves and men alike. It seems possible that these circumstances would make Bilbo quite satisfied with himself, and show him that adventures aren't always uncomfortable and unpleasant. But that's not what happens at all. Bilbo is not swept up in the general enthusiasm that has both the lake men and the dwarves thinking grand and confident thoughts. He is not pleased at all to see the mountain, even though it's the final and wished-for goal of their whole quest. In fact, he did not like the way the mountain seemed to frown at him and threaten him as it grew ever nearer. Amidst all the speech-making and feasting, which one would think he would appreciate if anybody does, we learn that the only person thoroughly unhappy was Bilbo. Now, from the beginning, he's a bit of an outsider to all the festivities. He alone is neither dwarf of the mountain nor man of the lake, and thus not directly concerned with the destiny of the region. 
Although we know how centrally important he's been to the journey and the quest so far, he does not seem to be an obvious part of the prophecies, for no song had alluded to him in even the obscurest way. Moreover, Bilbo strikes a sour and prosaic note in the midst of the glamour and romance of the dwarves' sudden return. Bilbo's very mundane and unheroical head-cold emphasizes his peculiar status. He's an outsider looking on, and not particularly enjoying the party. Bilbo's time in Lake Town shows us a new way in which the Baggins and Took elements of Bilbo interact with each other. In the Elven King's Caves, we saw Bilbo's Tookish experiences seasoning and enriching his Bagginsish values, without doing anything to destroy them. Now, we see his no-nonsense prosy point of view coming to his aid as he applies it to his current, admittedly outlandish, situation, preparing to invade a dragon's lair. While everyone around him is singing confident songs and swaggering as if Smaug were already chopped up into little pieces, Bilbo has not forgotten the look of the mountain, nor the thought of the dragon. Bilbo, in his unhappiness and discomfort, shows a great deal more wisdom than anyone around him is showing. Increasingly, it seems like Bilbo's Baggins and Took sides, utterly at odds in Chapter 1, are now beginning to work together. Okay, that's all for now. In the next lecture, Bilbo earns his reward. We'll look at what happens to Bilbo when he actually comes to the end of his quest and confronts the dragon Smaug himself. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.